This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, October 28, 2020 cockfighting. This disreputable pastime still persists, and we get the scoop from one of North America's leading animal rights experts. What role does social media play in exacerbating tensions between street gangs? The Dodgers win the World Series for the first time since 1988, and the folks at MIT are busy developing artificial intelligence to mitigate human exhaustion in the workplace. All of this starts now. In Southeast Asia, for example, they get cockfighting, which is not only legal, uh, it's sanctioned and broadcast on television. They've got all kinds of breeding farms everywhere. A billion-dollar industry is said in the Philippines. I was watching a video earlier today, and uh, this was attendant to a story about a cop in a raid. He actually got killed by one of these cocks or roosters. You know, they've got, like, sharp knives affixed to their talons and... I guess as the rooster was being apprehended as evidence, this thing just slices jugular. And <laughs> which, you know, no one wants to see that, but still, uh, but there's a prevalence of these kinds of practices still going on. The surprise is it's even happening in North America. To wit, uh, there is a group that has been monitoring this, and in Kentucky, they've asked the FBI and the governor to investigate because there's a cockfighting ring that operates out of that state as well. Steve Hindy is the founder and president of the animal rights organization Showing Animals Respect and Kindness, otherwise known as Shark, and he's joined the Oakley Show this afternoon to tell all. Steve, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Good to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, I was kind of surprised, uh, and yet probably shouldn't be. Uh, these cockfighting rings uh, still exist. You're going after one, I guess, in Kentucky. How widely uh, are these, uh, whether they're you know well-organized, they're uh, networked or whatever, uh, how prevalent are they? Well, I mean, cockfights, there are literally thousands of cockfights going on across the U.S., we're not sure yet how many are going on in Canada because uh, we've only been on the ground uh, on this uh, for a few months, and we're starting in the continental U.S. and then going out to the territories, and we've talked about Canada. We don't know how many you got going on up there. If there's anybody up there who wants to get in touch with us and let us know, uh, we've got a website up called crushcockfighting.com, and they can get in touch with us through that, and, and you know, we'd love to have information. But through, in the United States, you'll find the worst uh, or the, the highest amount of them in the southern part of the U.S., and then as you go north, the laws become more strict uh, with higher penalties, and so you have less of them going up north, but they're still out there. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it is a billion-dollar industry. Uh, it, it, it's also... A, a segue into 
the drugs, I mean, there's a lot of illegal drugs, both for the, for the birds and for the people who are involved. Um, a, in, in Monterey, California, the county of Monterey, California, a, a uh, grand jury did a report about cockfighting because they've got a real problem out there. And, you know, it talked about how cockfighting is a nexus to drug running, weapons, gangs, prostitution. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a criminal enterprise, and, and it's in a real bad way in the United States right now. So we're taking it on. Uh, it, it's, it's really become an upfront issue for us, and we're on, you know, we're, we're, we're where these cockfights are happening and starting to get them shut down. The worst part about it, the worst part about it is that these things can't go on if the police would just do their job. And so much of the time, the police in the U.S., in these areas where cockfights are problematic, are some of them are actually involved in cockfights. Some of them you'll see them at cockfights in uniform. Uh, we've, we have videotaped this stuff. We're putting this stuff up. And if the, if the, you know, in a place where a cockfight has been going on for literally years or decades, obviously the police know about it, and, and they're letting them go. So our biggest problem is, or our, our biggest challenge isn't fighting with the cockfighters. It's actually fighting with the police and the local authorities who know and allow it. Again, Steve Hindy with us, founder and president of the animal rights organization Showing Animals Respect and Kindness, otherwise known as SHARK. So what you're saying is uh, this is all part and parcel of larger illicit activity. It sort of goes hand in glove. Uh, and in all cases across the continental USA, uh, cockfights are illegal, uh, or is it just that the penalties vary from state to state? Cockfights are illegal throughout the United States and now even the territories, for instance, Puerto Rico, where cockfighting is very big, uh, it's illegal everywhere in the U.S., and, but the penalties do range from very minor in the South, let's say Alabama, for instance, they're, they're very minor, but you get up into like Illinois, where I live, and it's a felony first time around. So that's why we have far less cockfighting in Illinois than you'll find down in Alabama or Kentucky. Yeah, and when you mentioned Puerto Rico as well, I, I know that uh, one of the central cases that you've investigated is in Kentucky, but is it a cultural thing? Is it a rural thing? Uh, or, I mean, I don't know if it happens in urban settings as well. How do you assess it? Well, yeah, I mean, you'll find it everywhere. It, it, in, in, uh, in, in Puerto Rico, you're going to find it uh, in the countryside, but you'll find it in the touristy areas as well. And uh, it, it's the same thing. You'll, you can find cockfights occasionally in Chicago. Uh, but, but, you know, they're easier to hide out in the countryside. Now, when you were saying that the police are part of the problem because they condone it, uh, or they'll turn a willful blind eye to it if these things have operated these rings for years on end, they had to have known about it. What's the situation in Kentucky where I know uh, that there was, I guess you did some uh, surreptitious uh, videotaping as evidence that the uh, the police were, in fact, uh, complicit in allowing this to go on. What did you find uh, as far as the police involvement? Well, uh, they, uh, clearly they were there. They're in uniform. Uh, what, see, they didn't know the whole setup that we had going. We had people inside the cockfight. They're the ones who filmed the police officers there. We had people outside the cockfight who were 
calling the sheriff's department. And now the first person who called them was from, actually from out of state. And so they thought that that's all that we had was somebody calling about a cockfray from out of state. They didn't care what that, about that person. So they said, we sent somebody out there and there's nothing going on. So the next person to call was me because I was right outside the property. I called him back and I said, hey, you told my associate that nothing's going on. I'm outside the cockfight property and it looks like something's going on to me. And so then, then, they're, you know, then they, they say, oh, well, it's not illegal in Kentucky. Well, it is in, illegal in Kentucky, and it's been illegal for like 15 years. So it's hmm. not like it's something that just passed a year ago or a month ago or something like that. You know, it, you, you run into this. Now, we're very supportive of police, police who do their jobs, police who, you know, and properly enforce the law. But unfortunately, there are police out there that uh, are hooked in with these guys. And uh, in some places, like in Clay County, Kentucky, which the, the particular place we're talking about right now, I mean, those, the, the people who are doing the cockfighting are the ones who are picking the judges. They're picking the, the district attorneys, the prosecutors. You know, they're, they're running, basically uh, running the police station. And so, naturally, you got big problems there. And everybody knows that there's lots of problems in Clay County, Kentucky. The, the issue is that the corruption has been so deep and gone on for so long. It, you know, it, it's like, how do you get it out? It's, it's like, a, like a cancer that if you cut out the cancer, you basically cut out the whole organ. And that's, that's, that's the problem we're dealing with. So you've asked the FBI to investigate, is that it? We've asked the FBI. They haven't responded. Uh, we, are, we have talked to federal authorities some. And look, everybody you know, in the Kentucky State Police, they know that there's a problem. They know that certain counties like Clay County are very problematic. And in a way, I, I kind of sympathize with their situation. Like I said, it is so pervasive, and it has gone on for generations what do you do? I mean, you basically have to go in there and throw everybody out and start all over again. So, so it's a real issue. But, I, you know, bottom line here is if, if the police, this is their job, just go in and nail the cockfighters, uh, you know, that's the way to bring it under control. The police just have to have some backbone. And, of course, if your police don't have a backbone, you've got the wrong police. Yeah. Well, I got to say, Steve, I mean, this is scratching the surface. I mean, cockfighting is one thing. Uh, the pit bull rings, uh, perhaps the next shoe to drop here in your crusade. Uh, that's going on and widely recognized that this is happening, you know, uh, under maybe the watchful eye of authorities or if they know about it, uh, they're not saying much. But that, too, is another blight uh, on humanity's treatment of animals. So uh, perhaps we'll broach that in the next tranche. I appreciate you joining us this afternoon on the cockfighting issue that's uh, confronting many places in america and who knows what the situation in canada but if you follow up uh we'll discuss that at that time i appreciate your time thank you john thank you very much you got a steve hindy founder and president of the animal rights organization showing animals respect and kindness yeah guy in the philippines a cop busting a ring and the rooster with the sharp appendage just slices his jugular vein and a guy bleeds out they couldn't even get him to the hospital fast enough that's how sharp these things are and they're like four or five inches long it's insane and uh, you know they fight to the death that's the unsettling part of the video 
Great day for talk radio. It was a good night last night. If you're a Dodgers fan or you actually play for the team, uh, I suppose, all things considered, winning the World Series after uh, coming up empty in three of the last four occasions, uh, or two of the last four, I guess, uh, winning the third third time's the charm. Uh, and so this was what I... The sixth time the Dodgers have actually won a World Series since they moved from Brooklyn back in 58. Good on them, I guess. They spent enough money to do so. But uh, nonetheless, we've got the uh, inveterate Dodgers fan and uh, one who is versed in the ways of social media because I wanted to get around to talking about the spate of gun violence on the streets of Toronto where uh, a report in the Toronto Star was ascribing that as much as anything to social media and where people are dissing each other and retribution is sought. This is the way it sort of fans the flames. We'll get around to it all with Karen North, a professor of social media at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications. Karen, good to have you back on. I guess we can say congrats to your Dodgers there in L.A. So excited. The whole city is excited. And, you know, it's a city that loves the Dodgers, but I have to say it's a little brightness in an otherwise crazy pandemic year. So thank you. I hope that we meet the Blue Jays next year. (laughs) Well, we hope so, too, because you guys are (laughs) slated to be there. More often than not, uh, given that, you know, the payroll has exceeded $300 million, I think, and uh, I'm not saying you're buying your way to a championship. Hey, but... <laughs> hey. <laughs> no Yankees, you know. <laughs> uh, well, no, you've eclipsed the Yankees, I believe. Hey, stop. <laughs> by the way, uh, Karen, uh, you're the social media guru. Uh, is there a lot of blowback to Justin Turner uh despite being uh, tested positive for COVID and yanked out of the game in the seventh inning, shows back up uh, for the celebration and the team picture at the end of the thing without a mask. I mean, he could be a COVID super spreader. What are they saying? I mean, you know, I've only seen some of the, and it all depends on who you follow and what the Twitter algorithm thinks that you want to see. So I see some of it. I see more of the pro Dodger stuff. But, you know, it's really like the conspiracy theorists are having a little bit of a field day on this one also, because on social media, you can run down any rabbit hole you want and just focus on that. So I love the stuff that's like some crazy conspiracy that he tested positive. We knew it. We put him in anyway. And then the, the um, Tampa Bay found out and they tried to get him off the field. Like, you know, who knows what actually happened? It's a really weird situation anyway that they somehow in the middle of the seventh inning pull a player due to a COVID test that when did the results come in? When did he take the test? It's a very weird situation, but now there's all this, you know, so many things to talk about while we sit at home being bored and unhappy, we can just (laughs) chase down any, anything we want. But that is a social media ecosystem, isn't it? It is. And it's a great little microcosm of what, you know, your situation with the violence or the, you know, the pedophilia attacks on politicians and, you know, whatever it is that you want, there's some little group of people posting fake information and conspiracy theories. And in our boredom and frustration, we can find those and join in. Right. And stuff gets sent to you unsolicited, like uh, the Hunter Biden uh, stuff that ended up in my inbox. I mean, where's that coming from? However, uh, let me ask you about this violent crime phenomenon that here has been isolated as retribution that has spawned on social media or through social media. There was a story of a guy, uh, I guess a fledgling rapper, but aren't they all top gunner, a uh, real name to Quan Robertson. And uh, he was being sentenced this week, facing 10 to 15 years in prison because uh, in 
a fit of pique, I guess, that he had been mocked and scorned on social media for his rap lyrics and antics. Uh, he sought retribution, went out, and in fact, the person, the object of his derision, uh, wasn't at this playground. A bunch of kids were, and uh, a friend of his target. And so he shot the place up, and he injured uh, a five- and a nine-year-old. Uh, they live, but they've been irrevocably harmed. And this has been pointed to uh, a case that's sort of symptomatic of a larger problem with social media and the need to somehow meet insult with some kind of uh, payback. Is that similar to your experience in L.A., I'm guessing, uh, stateside, or just you understand this phenomenon? I mean, it's honestly, you know, unfortunately, it's a worldwide phenomenon, and it's a little bit... um, you know, it, 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 all of these things, when we say, is this a new phenomenon, I encourage people to go back and think, have I ever seen a version of this in the physical world, but it's now amplified and kind of crazier on social media? And so, you know, it's, it's all kind of the same thing. People provoke, and, you know, this is like the guy who was provoked in front of his friends, and so he had to save face and go, you know, um, get vengeance, right? And there are movies and books and real life stories but the problem with social media time and time again and you know i'm a huge advocate obviously for my field of study but the problem with social media is for good and for bad you have access to too many people you have too big of an audience there's no little private conversation and the biggest part is that the social cues are gone so people can provoke each other but nobody looks around and sees their friends shaking their head going like whoa hold on a second what are you thinking you know nobody's there to sort of unless they're willing to post it in front of everybody, the social cues of this is not okay, you're violating our norms, you're doing something dangerous, this is not good, are gone. And so people can interpret or misinterpret or amplify things, and there's no there's no normal social checks on the conversation or on the person's emotions who's gone a little bit too far or way too far on an action. Well, that's a rather ominous thing you've just said here, uh, a dangerous development. Somebody's humiliated at scale, uh, you know, as as you said, it's amplified. And there's no governor on uh, maybe talking you in off the ledge. I don't know what we say to that. I mean, should there be? Where can this go? Uh, this can only lead to further tragic outcomes, can't it? Well, I mean, it, you know, it, it has there. I could flip it around and say the same opportunity or the same um, the same mechanisms work for the people who have some um, you know private condition or concern or interest and they can now find people to talk to they could find like-minded individuals out there somewhere in the world who share their worry their medical condition whatever it is and you can you can meet up with these people and you could have meaningful conversations but the problem is that yeah it I mean you know I'm always worried and I have teenagers like I have kids I'm always worried about what's lost in the communication. We are human animals. We interact with each other by all of our physical nature. And, you know, the look and smell and the body language and the eye contact and all that. And so much of it is missing. And to think about the people, especially the people who are kind of um, deficient in social sensitivities, right, that they hear something and they overreact. We all know those people. We've all gone to school with them. We've all worked with them. And then what happens is you get somebody who misinterprets things or who overinterprets things and you put them online and start taunting them. And, you know, they're like, it's very hard to figure out how to intervene. And it happens quickly and it happens bigger and bigger.
and to a large extent, social media is antisocial, I guess. You know, it also may play a role though, uh, when you get people who uh, are actively engaged. I think of the Kardashians often. Uh, but there was a story about Kim Kardashian uh, wanting to take her entirely, uh, entire family to uh, this deserted island to celebrate a birthday and uh, put them all on planes and then, you know, was pictured there having a happy time. She's saying just trying to find a little slice of normality uh, amongst the madness. And she's been excoriated for that. Uh, she's got the siblings all there and I guess the mother and what have you. Uh, is this somehow uh, maybe there's a positive in this that, you know, the countervailing force to being tone deaf is that people are going to let you know and shout it loud enough so you will get the message. You think there's some positive in that? I mean, you know, if you're Kim Kardashian, maybe, but I'll tell you, like, if you want to tear up in a, like, meaningful way, if you listen to the new song that Justin Bieber put out that was done by Justin Bieber and Benny Blanco and Phineas called Lonely, you know, it talks about not only how lonely he can be as this superstar, right, but it also says, you know, look at all the criticism I got when I was an idiot kid, you know, for the things I did when I was an idiot kid. And it's, you know, think about it. If you have any level of celebrity, then you are fair game. And by the way, if you have any level of celebrity, also meaning if you're somehow a notable figure in your personal life and people know about you, then people can talk about you or say things or post things online. And there could be a bigger audience than you ever thought. And you could be humiliated or celebrated in a bigger way, right? Because the Internet is no longer the group of people coming together at work or at school and gossiping to each other. Now it's a public forum. You know, by the way, I always like to say that when I was a kid, people used to say, don't do that. Would you want to see that on the front page of a newspaper? And I used to think there's no way that that could happen. What newspaper is here or cares about me? Right. But that is that threat is now a real threat for all of us. And so you take this situation that you guys have with the violence, and it's not, it's not the newspaper, although now it is, right? But it's these people feel like they are called out in front of their friends, their enemies, and then a broader audience. And again, we go back to that awkward, angry, socially inept kid who feels like they have to do something to save face, and they don't know what to do. So they do the wrong thing. Nicely put. Uh, certainly does capsulize the question that I had, whether or not this is uh, rather rampant. Uh, anything new? You're saying it only is insofar as social media has amplified things. It's always a pleasure, Karen. I appreciate that. And uh, again, congrats on the Dodgers winning. And uh, you can go enjoy your Dodgers wine. Is there such an animal? I'm just going to wear blue. I, you know there has to be, right? I'm sure it's not good, <laughs> but it should be blue nun or something. <laughs> Ha! Oh, okay. <laughs> really going down market. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> blue nun. Uh, um, for the, the pandemic, if the pandemic, when the pandemic ends, you know, I'll meet you at your stadium and we can watch the Dodgers play the Blue Jays if they ever meet. Right, different leagues. Well, that's true. Uh, crossing the border is still very much in question, but should it come to pass that it's opened up, uh, the invite stands. Uh, you can come up, I or think I'll come probably down. I do not. Do not pass note on my file. (laughs) (laughs) In any event, Karen, uh, good to talk as always. Thanks for your time. Continue to stay well. Thank you. You too. Love talking to you. As we do here. Karen North, professor of social media at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications. 
Sounds a great night for the L.A. Dodgers last night. Needless to say, winning the World Series, uh, ending a drought. They were in three of the last four, but uh, came up empty until last night. Although, uh, I guess there's some controversy surrounding, uh, well, in different ways, uh, from Tampa's point of view, uh, they're taking a lot of heat, or at least their manager is, because uh, he yanked their ace starter out of the game when he was cruising along and had the game well in control, and uh, that's when things started to unravel for the Rays. Uh, however, you know, you've got Los Angeles, uh, biggest spenders in Major League Baseball, so uh, money seemed to talk, and uh, now they're doing the walk. But, And then there's Justin Turner as well, the third baseman, who was diagnosed with COVID, COVID positive, uh, yanked after the seventh inning, <laughs> yet he came out to celebrate Son's mask. So let's put this all into some kind of context or perspective. Joining me on the line is Jacob Pomeranke. He's a baseball historian with the Society for American Baseball Research. Jacob, good to have you back in the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on, John. So tell me about last night. Um, I mean, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this, uh, maybe not necessarily for... Well, there was, because the game, as it was being played, I was saying that uh, the Tampa Rays were sailing along, and uh, Blake Snell was pitching, uh, you know, a wonderful uh, game outing cruise, and then he gets yanked by uh, Kevin Cash, the manager with Tampa, because... It was based on analytics, we're told, algorithms and all the rest. Uh, how do you see it? Was that a mistake? Well, I certainly think if you look at the results, uh, it was a mistake. But, you know, this is the process that has brought the Tampa Bay Rays to the World Series is uh, by looking at their pitchers and how deep they go into games. And so, you know, they, they uh, live by the sword and die by the sword. And I think that's uh, what happened last night. They, they went with their process. They trusted uh, their decision-making skills and you know this time it, it didn't come through for them but uh, I think overall they're going to look back and be satisfied with the decision just not the results wow all right uh, it seems to me like that's rationalizing because <laughs> you know he hadn't given up any hits I guess or if it was it was one hit no runs you know is this thing uh, analytics now it's dominating baseball it's taking the guesswork out of it the human element and some people critically have said uh, you know you wouldn't see uh, a Kirk Gibson, a Lasorda wouldn't have sent him out, and I guess it was the 88 playoffs uh, with Oakland, you know, on a gimpy leg, uh, but he wins the game and they go on to win the series. What what has changed? I mean, is this something that we can say is to uh, the betterment or the diminishment of baseball as a spectator sport? Well, I certainly think there are uh, valid questions about, you know, some of the decision-making and, and whether that is uh, good entertainment or not. Uh, for fans, and I think you know, certainly most fans, especially Rays fans, would have wanted to see Blake Snell stay in the game. And I think uh, you can make a very, very strong argument that he should have stayed in the game, that he was pitching well. Um, you know, but uh, but yeah, this is again, this is this is how the Rays make their decisions all season long. And so um, I, I think you know they are able to justify their decision making, even though the result uh, didn't quite work out. You know, earlier in the World Series, they did pull. Blake Snell, he had been pitching uh, a no-hitter into the fifth inning, and and they pulled him fairly early after he had given up some hits and some walks. Um, So in that situation, the bullpen uh, came through for them, and this one it did not. And so, you know, it's it's a a, a tough case because, you know, we look at the results, and the World Series is such a a short series, and, you know, every decision is, is magnified. So when it doesn't work out, you know, we have a lot to criticize. But uh, like I said, I think the Rays are going to, you know, look back and, and think that they at least went through the, the process and they, 
trusted their their bullpen. Uh, it just it just didn't work out for them last night. That's all. What did you make of uh, the Dodgers? You know, obviously go right through uh, the luxury tax. It's structured differently than hockey with a cap, but. Uh, this is something where people are saying they're just spending their way. And in fact, it was inevitable they were going to win at some point, even though, you know, the previous two times in the last four years, uh, they came up empty. Uh, did money really carry them through here? I mean, the Mookie Betts deal uh, where, you know, he's locked in for, I don't know, 10 years or something uh, at an exorbitant amount of money. And arguably the best player uh, in that series, if not the league, uh was money the determinant here? Because uh, Tampa's, uh, you know, they're known for to be skin flints and uh, managing a real tight budget. I, I think money certainly uh, plays a very large role in, in how the Dodgers have been in, so successful uh, for the last seven or eight years. And, you know, having the opportunity to add uh, one of the best, if not the best player in baseball in Mookie Betts in this past offseason, um, you know, certainly gives them more depth than probably any other team in the major leagues. Um, and I think, you know, that is a, a very large uh, reason why they're able to uh, compete for the World Series every year and, and ultimately win it last night. Um, so, you know, having, having the opportunity to add the best player in baseball to a team that most people already consider to be the best team in baseball, um, you know, is, is uh, a luxury that not all teams can afford, especially the Tampa Bay Rays. I guess it was the league's uh, dream, uh, best-case scenario. It would have been with the Yankees and the Dodgers, but still with the Dodgers in there. And I get it, Tampa, maybe not uh, the largest of markets. But the ratings have been pretty abysmal, have they not? Uh, what's going on? Is baseball waning for interest? Is it the, well, the time of year? Uh, you know, it's uh, similar to a regular season pre-pandemic. Uh, what gives with that? What, what, do you, what is your sense, Jacob, is happening with the viewership for baseball? You know, it is true that the, the ratings have been down uh, throughout this postseason for baseball. Um, and there's been a lot of interesting research done in the past few months about that. And, and the truth is that ratings have been down for almost all sports, uh, professional sports, um, throughout North America this year. And, and, you know, I think we're living in unprecedented times and the, the schedule for a lot of sports. You know, baseball was able to uh, get started in July and play its postseason in October like it normally does. But it was competing with a lot of other sports. You know, everything's trying to happen all at once. And, um, you know, my belief is that people kind of got overloaded uh, with all the sports that was available uh, on TV in the last, you know, few months. So I think that's a, a big part of the reason why, you know, we're, we have a lot to choose from. And so, consequently, uh, there's no one sport that's really, uh, you know, taking the lead and, you know, growing its viewership. I think that's... Uh, Part of the issue that baseball has had is that there's a lot of other competition for eyeballs right now. Finally, I've got to ask, I mean, uh, do you think that uh, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of the league, ought to uh, do something about Justin Turner? Test positive, but they find out into the seventh inning. Uh, some people are even dubious about that, saying he played probably when he knew his status, and then coming out later to celebrate, which I can understand the impulse, but I mean, you have to weigh into the equation whether or not he might be considered a super spreader. Should the Dodgers have uh, done better by just people in general, his teammates? Does the league have a say-so in this matter, or should they? How do you see it? Absolutely. I do think the league has a say, and I think the league has a responsibility and a, a social obligation to set a good example. And, and the example that they set uh, on national television last night uh, was a very poor one. Um, you know, and, and having Justin Turner out there 
um, after having tested positive, after being pulled from the game, um, and then he's out there celebrating with his teammates without a mask, you know, is, is the height of irresponsibility. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, is a failure uh, up and down baseball. You know, obviously the player himself uh, has a responsibility to take care of uh, the people around him, not just his teammates, but their families and everyone that was uh, working at the game last night. Um, but, you know, this is also something that goes up the line. I think Major League Baseball has done a poor job of, uh, you know, enforcing their rules and their own health guidelines. Um, and we've seen that all season long with players and coaches not wearing masks on the field and, and you know, the, the way that they've interacted uh, with each other. You know, they're not following their own guidelines, which uh, is setting a poor example. And I think that's something that MLB has some responsibility to, uh, to do better. Um, and that's, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, the, the leadership wasn't in place to, uh, to enforce those rules. And we all saw it last night with, with Justin Turner testing positive and then, you know, going back on the field to celebrate. That's something that uh, I think is going to, you know, deliver a black eye to baseball. And, and we're going to be talking about it for a long time. Interesting to talk to you about it this afternoon. I appreciate it. Uh, the sixth time that the Dodgers have won the World Series since leaving Brooklyn in 58. I guess that's the loser's lament. Let's keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn. That was an old song back in the day, of course, as they were uh, set to move to the West Coast. Uh, Jacob, good to talk again, as always. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to pick it up again next baseball season. All right. Thanks again, John. You got it. Jacob Pomeranke. He's a, a baseball historian and uh, with the Society for American Baseball Research. I guess fundamental to humanity is uh, being at peak performance. And sometimes when we're uh, incapable of doing just that, you know, we all suffer from fatigue. What is it uh, Vince Lombardi, the old football coach, said? Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Well, it seems artificial intelligence uh, may pick up the slack. As a matter of fact, it can be leading uh, human behavior insofar as sensing that somebody is flagging or failing. Scientists have developed something called AI teammates that can sense cognitive fatigue and help humans to recover. Uh, so says the headline in a piece that I've read, and uh, it involves one Dr. Megan Blackwell, former deputy leader of internally funded biological science and technology research at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory. Dr. Blackwell, good to have you on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. All right, we've got to find out about this because I guess it's on the vanguard of uh, human interactivity with machines. So uh, when we talk about AI teammates, what do we mean specifically? How does that work? Sure. So we use various sensors um, to measure biomarkers uh, from EEGs, from heart rate, from optical measures of brain activity. And when a person is fatigued or cognitively overload, these biomarkers will change. And when that change is detected, we envision using an AI to either offload tasks or um, somehow intervene to make sure the human is still at their peak performance. Or uh, at least... I guess protected, too, if I can read it correctly, because I was thinking as I was looking through the article, uh, one of the more common applications that we see today, and correct me if I'm wrong, car sensors. You know, you start to veer off the road because you're getting drowsy, and the car kind of alerts you and brings you back online, right? Absolutely. So if someone is falling asleep, you can envision just enabling the um, 
automatic driver to take control of the car. So that that's a, a very similar application. Yeah, I'm thinking the Titanic would have made it to port as well if it had this stuff about a century ago. Uh, but this is, well, yeah, although... Well, we no, if you ab- could navigate the iceberg, sure. Sure. Well, we can laugh about it now. Uh, there's enough time that's lapsed. Uh, and so when you talk about all of these biomarkers, uh, you're basically fitting a machine to uh, human feedback in the feedback loop. Uh, so if you can give me other indications of applications where people might get fatigued and uh, get sloppy, errant, or even irresponsible and dangerous in their activities, where might this best be applied uh, in other scenarios? Absolutely. So pilots often are multitasking and could be fatigued or overloaded. So could medics or um, image analysts, um, air traffic controllers. Um, There's a slew of applications. All right, because uh, when we've got this neuromonitoring taking place, that uh, it builds a cognitive model of the individual, if I've got it right, and this cognitive model then is integrated with these inputs, and if it senses something is not operating at peak performance, it would almost be like me. You know, if I start to drift off in my narratives or soliloquies, there's a, a buzzer in my seat that jolts me back to attention. <laughs> so. Back to task, back to task. Exactly. And, and one key thing that you bring up is that each individual is unique and different and would show different signs or has a different threshold. So we could measure biomarkers for each individual and tailor the intervention to that person. All right. And so how soon, I mean, it's happening already, as we said, in some rudimentary forms, but uh, how soon before we see this widely applied across all kinds of disciplines? Sure. So I envision the next three to five years working to ruggedize this in laboratory and operational settings. And then probably in the next five to 10 years, this could be more broadly available. Are there any concerns about uh, being too invasive, intrusive, you know, privacy things? Would those issues arise here at all? Well, data protection is always a concern, but um, there are already commercial um, EEG sensors out there, for example, that will let you shift gears or um, fly drones. So this, our systems and other systems could protect data um, much in the same way. Yeah, they're saying combat situations, maybe uh, aviation, uh, people who are doing, as you said earlier, multitasking, think of air traffic controllers, uh, they got to be sharp and e- eternally vigilant, I guess, uh, always at the ready. This would be one area that could be prioritized, I'm guessing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, if that's the case, then uh, bring it on, I say. Uh, and so in three to five years, we can see wider applications of this technology. This is artificial intelligence, and uh, it's just growing in leaps and bounds. Uh, but when we see it in its pragmatic or practical practical form, it makes perfect sense. Really appreciate your giving us a snapshot into uh, your world of developing all of these technologies. Uh, important to note. And I appreciate your time this afternoon, Dr. Blackwell. And thank you, John. Dr. Megan Blackwell, member of the technical staff at the Human Health and Performance Systems Group with the MIT Lincoln Laboratories. That's a mouthful. I could 
probably use a bit of a jolt myself. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, October 28, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.